And so with that, brothers and sisters, we are ready to begin our second class. Our speaker is Brother Jason Robinson. The theme for Brother Robinson's classes this week is The Tales of the Giants. Today's class is entitled The Giant and the Boy. Brother Jason. Thank you very much, and good morning, brothers and sisters. Friday, we're almost there. Um, if anybody does need note cards today, fingers crossed, we're gonna be able to make it in time. Uh, I've been having the worst luck getting through all my slides with the teens. I do a little better in here, but uh, we're gonna hopefully make it to note card uh, time today. So if you guys do need them, they're here up at the front. Um, hopefully we all still have them though from when they are passed out on Monday. Uh, we're gonna be using one side today. Again, God willing, if we make it to that section um, of the day. <clears throat> so let's review where we've come so far. On Monday, we really spent some time getting to know our giants. We then worked on removing any doubts that you could beat your giant and hopefully convincing ourselves that we would like to. Uh, yesterday, we spent the day with Caleb and we really explored where our giant's homeland was. We looked at how um, giants tend to come back even though Joshua slew all of the giants in Hebron, Caleb had to come a few chapters later and do the same thing again. Uh, and so we had the homework yesterday of how can you make sure this location stays giant-free for your family and brothers and sisters, because we do not want these giants rearing their ugly heads again uh, in our lives. And then today we're going to be taking a look at a little bit more internally. So we are basically done getting to know our giants and the where's and the why's and the how's. And today is going to be a little bit more focused on your role in the giant fight. Today, we're going to be talking about the attacking and defending when fighting your giant. We're going to look at weapons. We're going to look at armor. We'll take a look at the weapons your giants use. And we'll take a look at what weapons giant slayers use. We'll take a look at what armor your giant uses and what armor giant slayers use. Today, we really form our battle plan. We start to focus on the role to play that we play with our giants. We're pretty much done learning about them, and we're going to learn and see where we fit in. Well, last time we ended and we spoke about how Joshua cleansed some areas of giants. It says in Joshua 11, verse 22, there were none of the Anakim left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod there remained. So there's three cities in particular in which Joshua could not drive out the giants, in Ashdod, in Gaza, and interestingly enough, in Gath. These are where the Anakim remained. Now we know that this land becomes Philistia. And when the Philistines captured this territory, they apparently allowed the giants to live among them. So when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is our backdrop. The Philistines are clearly using their newly integrated giants to intimidate the children of Israel. After all, it had worked so well before. And we're going to see many similarities between the battle of David and Goliath 
and the children of Israel at the edge of the promised land. But these people in Philistia, like the rest of the world, knew about not only the victories that the mighty Israelite nation had accomplished, but unfortunately, they also knew of some of their weaknesses. And the Philistines would send out a giant. Because if there's anything Israel is scared of, it was giants. So let's take then a look at this one little city called Gath. Gath is an interesting place. But before we dive into really get to know more about David and Goliath, it's crucial that we lay some quick rules. First of all, the story of David and Goliath might just be the most well-known story in all of Scripture to those outside. Maybe even more known than a whale who ate Jonah. Maybe even more well-known than all the animals who gathered together on an ark during a worldwide flood. Maybe even more well-known or better known than the perfect man who died for the world. Because it's come to stand for the little guy against the big guy. The true underdog story, which we love so much. The big and bad and ugly Goliath being taken down by the shepherd kid with just a sling. But picture David sitting in the front row right here. Is that how he would see the story? He tells Goliath and Saul and, and others that it wasn't him fighting. It wasn't himself fighting Goliath. That was the whole point of Deuteronomy. That was the whole point of Caleb. It wasn't these people fighting the giants. It was our Heavenly Father. So instead of this being an underdog story, the little guy beating the big guy, I'm really sorry to say it's actually just another story about God beating giants. If we've learned anything so far, it's certainly that we can't fight these giants on our own, and neither did David. This is a battle against, about a little guy against a big guy. But the little guy isn't David. The little guy is Goliath against our Heavenly Father. And in order to fight your giants, you're going to need the help of your Heavenly Father. Now, this giant was from Gath. And Gath, being neighbors with Israel, it seems, had some influence from Israel. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 6, and at verse 16, and when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. This is, of course, when the ark was captured, and it wreaks havoc in the land of the Philistines. Verse 17, and these are the golden emeralds which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto Yahweh. For Ashdod, one. For Gaza, one. For Ashkelon, one. For Gath, one. And for Ekron, one. So they knew at least some of the worship practices of the Israelite God of Yahweh. We also know from the next chapter in verse 14 across the page that the cities from which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. So Gath had actually been back and forth between the Philistines and the Israelites for many, many years. Now, apparently, when you come to 1 Samuel 17, it appears that maybe they had lost it again. 
And only a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 21, this is actually the place where David flees when he flees from Saul. And so it's quite curious that the city of Gath seems to be close enough to understand a little bit about the God of Israel. I mean, after all, the children of Israel knew a lot about the gods of the Philistines and their worship practices. And so it seems likely that maybe the Philistines had the same. And so it's with this history of Gath that they send out a giant. And let's take a look at verse 4 of 1 Samuel 17, and let's get to know the armor of Goliath of Gath. 1 Samuel 17 verse 4 says, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span over nine feet tall. He had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass, and he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders, and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. So look at the qualifications of the armor of the Goliath of Gath, this champion that they send out was armored and had weapons to the hilt. Do you feel like our giant has this much armor? Sometimes we, I definitely feel like my giant has this much armor. Let's use the example of a giant being some sort of addiction, whether it's alcohol-related drug-related. Let's use this as our giant for this morning's example. What armor does a substance addiction have? Well, it's anything that appears to my eyes is going to protect that giant from me just beating it easily. That's the armor that this giant can put on. It could be anything from triggers, there's places, there's sites, there's people that just make it feel like I need to satisfy the addiction. Possibly peer pressure. Maybe I've beheaded this giant, and then all of a sudden I find myself hanging out with that crowd again, and somehow the giant puts his head back on and I'm dealing with it again. Maybe it's the way that it kind of rewires our body. Maybe it's stress or anxiety. Right, all of these things that the giants can put on as their armor that can make us look at them and say, I am never going to beat that. That armor, are you kidding? That coat of mail is 5,000 shekels of brass. I can't penetrate that. And so if we look at our quick guide, the first kind of bullet for today is, what does your giant use for armor when you go to battle against it? And you can spend a few minutes kind of contemplating this. It's an interesting and tricky question, but our giants have armor. They're not standing there waiting for us just to pick up a stone and sling it at them, to take a sword and lob their head off. They might even have armor bearers holding shields in front of them. There might be a lot you have to break down before you can get to your giant. But in 1 Samuel 17, as we continue the story, there are a few people who are just too scared of the giant. 
too much armor, too big of weapons, whatever it was, they found themselves quite content in their tent. Look at verse 12. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. So we have these three boys. And David was the youngest and the three eldest. Why? They followed Saul, it says. They followed their king into battle, like a good soldier would. But these three brothers, interestingly enough, they would have seen and heard everything that Goliath was saying. And they didn't do anything about it for 40 days, we're told. It's awfully easy for us, brothers and sisters, to think of ourselves as Davids in the story, isn't it? Bravely approaching our giant, God's power in our hands, and charging towards him. But what actually happens way, often, way more often for me personally is that I might actually be an Eliab. My tent's just fine. The giants are out there, but they're not bothering me really at this moment. I know they're a threat to spirituals, spirituality, but I just don't feel like engaging with them. I'm aware they're there. I'm living in peace, but I don't need to engage in the fight. And this was the message of the three older brothers of David. And so just be careful as we come into these stories that we don't immediately assume that we're like David's, because there's many characters in the story who refused to fight the giant. It says in Hebrews chapter 6, a couple of cool verses for us just to remember on our path. It says, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them that who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so to inherit the promises, to have the full assurance of hope, it does require us to be diligent in the truth, and it requires us to not be slothful. This is what is being told of us in Hebrews. Unlike these three older sons of Jesse. But we know the story, don't we, brothers and sisters? There's one more individual who, if you were standing on the battlefield, you would have thought would have stood up the first day to fight. I mean, after all, it's why you thought he was chosen to be king. It says in 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. And you would look around and you would say, well, who should fight this really tall enemy? What about our really tall king? What about if we're like Saul, brothers and sisters? You see, I think the nation of Israel learned a great deal of Saul during these 40 days. King Saul is just like that man who talks all about the giants he fights. He's got the armor to do it. He fits the description of the perfect giant fighter. But in actions, maybe you notice that he seems to actually cower away from a fight. You know, brothers and sisters, maybe our giant actually might be dealing with people like Saul. Hypocrites in our ecclesia, it seems, sometimes. 
It was certainly another giant for David, who had many opportunities to remove Saul, but refused on more than one occasion to not kill the Lord's anointed. And so here's King Saul, who everyone would have expected to fight. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 38 and 39, that he had armor. And not only that, but he had almost the same exact armor. He had a helmet of bronze, coat of mail, and a sword. And as he puts these on David, David is starting to look himself a little bit like Goliath. And David thinks, I can't go to battle looking like the giant himself. But yet King Saul would often fall upon his own armor to support him in his fight. And finally, 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 and 20 says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, who said, You shouldn't choose a king. You already have a king. His name is Yahweh. And said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we may be also like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so you can see the rest of the nation here. It says that the three eldest followed Saul. Well, it seems like all the warriors were following Saul, not fighting the giant. Kings were meant to lead their people to battle. That's why David was the one who fought the giant. He was this true king of Israel. But before we do that, we have another interesting question. You see, there's two types of armor. There's the armor of the giant, and there's the armor of Saul. What does the armor of Saul look like? Do we ever put on that armor? You see, Saul put his armor on David, thinking, that's how God's going to help you, wearing my own armor. But what does Saul's armor look like for us? He had a helmet of brass, he had the coat of mail, and he had a sword. You see, he looked, in all intents and purposes, like he should have been fighting the giant. And he puts it on David. Finally, a brave soldier in my ranks who's going to go fight him. You're going to need this. But the problem, brothers and sisters, with Saul's armor is its usefulness relies on the giant attacking you, not you attacking the giant. And this is how Saul probably fought all his battles, waiting for the giants to get close to him instead of him running towards the army and charging towards them. Saul assumed on all points that there would be a struggle. I'm going to need this armor. And David knew that there wouldn't be a struggle. So what does Saul's armor look like for us? What kind of armor? Does Saul offer you that tricks you into thinking it's all that you're going to need to fight your giant? Let's break it down. We need to fight a giant. We can check that box. We all know we need to fight a giant, but we don't really want to. I can check that box. I rely on something fairly worthless to fight and defend from my giant. That's what Saul's armor looks like. Now, something worthless is quite subjective, isn't it? It can mean a lot of different things. What works for you in fighting your giants, you could come and say, Jason, I tried this and it really worked. And I could try it and I, I can come back to you and say, that didn't work for me. I, I was probably doing something wrong, 
but it just wasn't working. And it can be very subjective what we find out works, what armor we end up using. But you keep this armor in your tent for when you're going to need it. So let's consider now again another giant for the sake of an example of Saul's armor. Let's consider the giant of inappropriate shows or movies. Let's assume that this is the giant that we want to slay at this point in time. What would Saul's armor be for inappropriate shows or movies? Saul's armor would be something like hiding the remote. Well, if I can't find the remote, I can't work the TV. Problem solved. Maybe setting li limits on your content restrictions. That could be Saul's armor, right? You know what? It's not really there. But I guess if I needed it, I could always get it again. Setting limits on your Wi-Fi to shut off at a certain time. You see, the problem with Saul's armor is it relies on the giant attacking you, not you attacking the giant. There was a reason that David says, I cannot accept this armor. First of all, it weighs me down. It makes the battle complicated. It makes it so there will be a battle. And Saul thought, you know, there's going to be a fight. David says, there'll be no fight. God's going to defeat this giant. So we have to go into battle with the mindset that God is going to beat the giants for us, not rely on these backup method, methods, not rely on things that may get us some sort of accidental victory. Wow, would you look at that? I beat that giant. What are the chances? So what does David do? Well, David tries on the armor. He doesn't want to use it. He can't. It's going to get in the way. It's going to weigh him down. He's not even going to need it. The giant is never going to get that close. Instead, it says in verse 37, he says to Saul, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and Yahweh be with thee. Good luck. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head, and also he armed with the coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said to Saul, I can't go with these. I've not proved them. And David put them off from him. And he took, in verse 40, his staff and chose him five smooth stones. And he put them in a shepherd's bag and his sling in his hand. And with these, he drew near the giant, a stick and five rocks. Saul's armor left behind. It's not going to do him any good in this battle. David's giant. He didn't need to defend himself with those things. So what about the five smooth stones? You see, they're smooth for a reason, brothers and sisters. They've been through it all. They've been smooth, worn down. All the rough edges have been chiseled away. And they've stood the test of time. These aren't five new, sharp, jagged stones. These have been in the brook for a long time, and they've stood against it all. So what five stones can we bring into our battle against our giant? 
I'd like to share with you just five that I thought of. Ones that I've used in the past. They might not work for you. They might have the opposite effect for you. But I don't use these every time. I don't use all of these all the time. These are just five that I've considered in times past. So what are five smooth stones that Jason's used? Believe it or not, the daily readings is a big one. <clears throat> Why? Every day? Can't you just read a little bit more the next day? I suppose. But having a daily regiment where you sit down and you say, we're going to read the word. What it does is it puts a priority in everything in your life. It says, no matter what happens today, I'm going to make room in my ever so busy life for God. You see, what often can happen is we can end a long day and think to ourselves, I'm not even going to pay attention if I do the readings. Might as well watch something. But if we make time and we say, you know what? I'm going to start my day with readings. I'm going to end my day with readings. Whatever it is you can fit it in. For me, daily readings have helped. Another thing that helps me, and again, this might not work for everyone, seems to be Christadelphian music, even hymns. For, for me, I'm, I love music. And the Christadelphian music that we have in our, in our community is wonderful. And just having it on occasionally can really kind of not only settle, but it really adds perspective. There's a lot of things you can listen to nowadays, an infinite amount of things. And some really good music out there would be Christadelphian music, and you can find it on a lot of different mediums. Another one that works for me, and I know won't work for everyone, is prophecy and current events. We spoke about it a couple times this week so far. For me, there's nothing quite like reading in the news, Russia attacks Ukraine. Russia meets with Iran. You read those little things and you go, my giant is tiny. I can beat this thing. The kingdom's coming any day now. For me, it helps. Distraction plans is also something that I can write down on one of my five smooth stones. As soon as I see that giant peering over the Valley of Elah, getting ready, I can enact a distraction plan. Whatever it is, the teens had some great ideas on distraction plans. A quick prayer, a quick reading, call a friend. Distraction plans can be very, very helpful in defeating giants. And last but not least, one of my favorites, but one I do not do enough of, is actually ecclesial projects. Your ecclesia will never, ever, ever not need you to help out with projects. There will always be something that you can work on at your ecclesia, if your ecclesia is anything like mine. There is always help that can be done. And if you find yourself just volunteering for a committee here and there, then you're gonna sit down and you're gonna say, my life's too busy to worry about these things. I got this due and I got that due and this has got to be done for the ecclesia here and this has got to be done for the ecclesia there and I got to take care of these kids for this family and that kid for this family. And all of a sudden, you just don't have time 
to fight these giants. That's a smooth stone you can absolutely use. Just sheer time limitations can help. Some of the things that could work, of course, is prayer. Ecclesial friendships and bonds. Reading. Many good pieces of work in our community. Classes. Spiritual routines. Anything that you think can be a tried and true stone that you can gather together to fight your giant, maybe just write it down. You don't have to use them all. In fact, you might only need to use one. But at least you'll have all five in case other giants come your way. And so we have Goliath, who approaches this boy who has nothing but a staff and a sling and some rocks. And the battle of the most popular giant begins. Verse 41, and the Philistine came on and drew near to David. Put your giant in the shoes of Goliath. And you yourself put on the shoes of David. Your giant draws near. And the man that bare the shield went before him. Bad news. Your giant has help. This might be a big battle. And he went, sorry, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog? that thou comest to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give thy flesh into the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. Well, Jason would be scared of all those, three of those things. But I come to thee in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will Yahweh deliver thee into mine hand. Yahweh will deliver thee into mine hand. And I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses the hosts of the Philistines. I'm not stopping with just you, Goliath. This day into the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall finally know that Yahweh saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hands. We see many echoes, I think, to the wilderness wanderings at this point in time. You see, it said in verse 11, earlier on, that they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, I think that's why the people of Gath brought a giant in the first place. They knew Israel's history. Everyone knew about how the children of Israel were terrified of the giants and how their God led them around the wilderness for 40 years. How many days does Goliath approach before the nation of Israel and defy their God? It's 40. Just as long as the children of Israel were scared of giants last time. David, a youth, he left the wilderness we're told in verse 28, to fight giants. That's what Deuteronomy 8 told, told us about the children of Israel. Goliath says the words, am I a Caleb? 
in the literal Hebrew. Am I a dog? He says. Goliath says, I will give your flesh unto the fowls and to the beasts. And this is why I think maybe these people of Gath knew Israel's history maybe a little better than Israel did. Look at Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the cursings chapter. Deuteronomy 28, looking at verse 25. Yahweh shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And thy carcasses shall be meat unto the fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth. And no man shall fray them away. And so Goliath, coincidentally, uses the same words found in Deuteronomy 28. Right after the verse, talking about how they would be smitten before their enemies. And David uses the words, I will give the carcasses of the hosts of the Philistines. And he brings his words from Numbers chapter 14. The familiar chapter, which we've looked at a few times this week so far. Numbers 14, verse 33. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. And there's many echoes here to the scary history of Israel and giants. But unlike last time, David went into it knowing that God could defeat the giants. He says that the battle is Yahweh's. Those words were never spoken by the children of Israel fighting their giants. They said, let's go back to Egypt. So picture the battle with your own giant. The giant approaches. Temptation takes that first step toward you. David runs towards it. There wasn't a second thought. No call for backup, no flinching, no backing down. He charges towards it. But not only that, but there's an entire army behind him. He decides, now's a good time to take them on. So, brothers and sisters, young people, David takes down Goliath of Gath, even though, as we read, he had many weapons. What weapons do our giants use in particular? We won't spend too much time on this, but you better believe your giant has weapons. He's got many of them. What weapons does he use? Substances, social interactions with people you just can't seem to get along with, apps on your phone, websites online. What is it that your giant uses to attack you day in and day out? Well, let's move, if we will, to the last giants in Scripture. We have to scoot forward a little bit here. But if you'll come with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21, we read about the last giants. Giants are no longer going to be a problem after 2 Samuel 21. They're going to be defeated. They're going to be gone out of the children of Israel. But I thought it appropriate to conclude our remarks this day with looking at the last ones. The first one we'd like to take a look at is verses 15 to 17. A giant by the name of Ishbi Benab. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. 
And Ishbi Binab, which was of the sons of the giant, the Rephaim, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he girded with a new sword thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. So we read about this giant, Ishbi Binab, in 2 Samuel 21, verse 16. David goes into battle against the Philistines again, as he had done many, many times before. But this new giant girds on his new sword. Whether it was a recent promotion or he wanted to test his new weaponry, whatever it was, he had his eyes set on David, Israel's giant slayer. Don't you hate it when your weapon, when your giant gets new weapons? Just when you thought you'd conquered your giant, they come out with another season. And man, we just got to know what happens. Even the great giant slayer David, though, at the end of verse 15, waxes faint, it says. He gets tired. Look at the principle here. Because Abishai comes to the rescue. Fighting giants is exhausting work. It's exhausting work. What happens if you see your brother or sister struggling with their giant? You help them. Sometimes we can see other people carrying the weight of their giant, and for whatever reason, we don't want that weight on us, and we just say, oh, man, it's a bummer for them. Abishai does not do that. The giant is gaining. The giant has the advantage, and it has its eyes on mighty David. But before he can smite weary David down, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, comes to the rescue of his king and slays a giant. We might recognize the name Abishai from one other place in Scripture, 1 Samuel 26. Abishai learned a very important lesson in 1 Samuel 26. Abishai and David, together, they spy Saul. And Abishai says, come, Lord, let us kill him. I'll put a spear through him. I won't even have to stab him twice. And David says, Yahweh forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against Yahweh's anointed. And what Abishai learns that day is that God will take care of Yahweh's anointed, whether for good or for evil. And I can picture Abishai running into the battle against the giant, protecting Yahweh's anointed himself and screaming the words, Yahweh forbid that you should stretch forth your hand against Yahweh's anointed. When it's David's turn to die, he'll die, but not by your hand, giant. And Abishai kills a giant. And then after this, David's men, having been so close to losing their king, whom they idolized, were told, insisted that he never go to battle again. And this is David's final battle against Ishbi Banab. You see, brothers and sisters, giants were the bookends to David's battles. The first he fought in 1 Samuel 17, and his last battle, 2 Samuel 21. And the people say, Thou shalt go no more with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. And the mighty giant slayer himself, in this chapter, he won't slay any more giants, but everyone who works for him does. We see four, three other giants. We see Saph in verse 18. 
we see Lami in verse 18, if you connect it with the equal account in 1 Chronicles 20. And we see finally the 24-digit giant who's unnamed, but slain by David's nephew. And it says in verse 22, these four were born to the giant in Gath, the Rephaim in Gath, and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. David didn't kill any of those four, but his examples did. And brothers and sisters, 2 Samuel 21 is the end of the giants. No more giants will approach before the children of Israel. Their test of physical giants is complete, and it's so poetic that the servants of David are the ones who handle it. Ever since Genesis chapter 6, giants have been roaming the earth, threatening the followers of God. What we've seen is that while they are tall, they are feeble. While they are mighty, they are meant to fall. In 1 Samuel 17, the story of Goliath, it says, he fell on his face. Giants are meant to fall. It wasn't until after he was dead and his head was removed that he was referred to as a champion. That's what he was. But giants are meant to fall. While giants are great and scary and daunting, our God is greater in every aspect. We don't have time to go through too much more. We do not have time to go through our note card maybe tomorrow. But I'd like to read for you a song in which David's mind was on his victories with Goliath. It's a short psalm, Psalm 8. And if you ever need a pep talk from scripture on how to beat your giant, Psalm 8's a perfect one. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou hast visited him? But thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of the hands of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Yahweh, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all of the earth. I would now like us, if we would, to conclude our session this morning with singing these familiar words of Psalm 8. They are laid out beautifully for us in hymn 5. These words were written by a giant slayer himself. They're words that are meant to humble ourselves and elevate the excellent name of our Father. So from one giant slayer to us, hymn five. Afterwards, you may remain standing for a closing word of prayer with our brother Luke Colby from the book Road Ecclesia to close in prayer and to give thanks for lunch. Hymn five, verse four. 
O Lord, how excellent thy name, how manifold thy ways. Let time thy saving truth proclaim, eternity thy praise. Hymn 5. Dear Heavenly Father, how great is your name in all the earth. We come before you at this time thankful for the time we've been able to spend this morning in consideration of your words of truth. We pray that you would help to give us the strength, help us to know how we can identify the issues in our life that need to be thrown down. We pray for your guidance and your strength. Help us not to be overcome by sin, but to know how we can put our trust in you, that only through your guidance and through your strength, we might be able to overcome the sin that so easily besets us. We pray for your guidance, help to give us a vision of that future day to come, to be watching and waiting for the return of your son. We pray for that day to be soon, that day when we will be working alongside your angels to fill the earth with your glory as the waters cover the sea. We thank you now for the many continual blessings you provide for us, for the food that has been provided. We know that all blessings come from your open hand. Be with us this day, we pray. Help us to strengthen and encourage each other on our walk towards your kingdom. As we ask these things now in your son's name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> 